outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about ice age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 166, and today in the show we're joined by Josh Boyd, an outdoor writer and an avid big game hunter from northern Montana. And we're diving into Josh's experiences and lessons learned hunting big whitetails in the hills and mountains of the Rocky Mountain West. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we are talking about hunting whitetails in hilly and mountainous terrain. And we're joined by a guy I met earlier this year by the name of Josh Boyd. And Josh is a big game hunter from Montana, an outdoor writer, a forest service employee, and a guy that knows how to kill really big whitetail bucks in areas that most people would probably never think to chase them. And this conversation was actually recorded earlier this summer while I was in Montana for the Sitka Gear Converge event, and I just really enjoyed this conversation. And I think even if you hunt in an area far, far away from the spots that Josh is hunting and the spots that he talks about, I think you're still going to be able to garner some new and helpful ideas. So in a minute here, we're going to toss it over to that interview, but before that, I wanted to share just a few quick updates. And first, we're not going to have a normal new episode next week because I'm going to be in Alaska for my very first caribou hunt, which uh, I'm, I'm very, very excited about. But we will be back week after that, and our next episode will be recorded from the field in the middle of my very first whitetail hunts of the year. As we've talked about over the past couple weeks, I'm going to be on a public land whitetail hunt in Montana and a public land hunt in North Dakota. So hopefully when we get back, we're going to have some good stories and lessons learned from all those experiences. Can't wait to share that with you. But in the meantime, I want to recommend a couple of our past episodes that you could give a listen to during our off week. 
especially if you're relatively new to the podcast and haven't gone through all of our old episodes. There's just an absolute huge wealth of information sitting there just waiting to be tapped into. So let me offer a couple for you to get started with and then feel free to go back, start at the very beginning and and listen in because I think even those old episodes you can learn something from. So first off, I would highly recommend you listen to episode number 83 with guest Shane Mahoney. And if you're not familiar, Shane is an incredible speaker and conservationist and advocate for wild places and wild animals. And in our episode, we go deep into a whole slew of different topics related to the history and future of hunting in America and hunting ethics and our responsibilities as hunters. And it's just a fascinating discussion. And if you haven't heard it yet, it's, it's just a must listen. I think every single person should hear what Shane has to say. I think it's so important, so valuable. So go ahead and get that downloaded right now and queued up for next week. And secondly, if you want a more tactic-related podcast, and if somehow you haven't heard this one yet, go back and listen to episode number 63. It is one of our very most popular episodes of all time and is just jam-packed with helpful insights. Everyone talks about how they need to take notes on this one over and over again. And this is the episode with the mad scientist, Mark Drury. And in this one, we get into all of his theories related to the various factors that he believes influence deer movement. So we talk about the wind and temperature and barometric pressure and moon phase and all sorts of different things. It's, It's just fascinating. One of my favorites, too. So... There you go. After this episode, make sure to go back and listen to episodes number 63 and number 83. And then we're going to get right back into it with new episodes in mid-September. Hopefully with good news from my Alaska hunt and updates on what the heck is happening in Montana and North Dakota. And um, I'm sure we're going to hear something new about Dan's kids too. So until then... I hope you enjoy this one. We're going to kick it over to our Sitka story now, and then we'll get to my conversation with Josh Boyd. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Drake Pollard, who tells us about a special tree on his northern Missouri property. Um, I think for me, um, the, the first time I get to north central Missouri uh, for hunting uh, this year and, and, and many years before, um, I go to my family farm and I visit uh, a stand or a tree that my grandfather uh, hunted when he was growing up and, and my family and friends, we've we've used this location uh, many a times, but it's predominantly myself that hunts up there now. And um, every time I visit the farm, I go to that stand. I go and sit there. Uh, my grandfather was an ha- avid hunter. Um, he taught us, you know, the, the ethical way of doing the right and wrong and, and how things need to be handled um, as an outdoorsman. And um, as a kid, he passed away. And um, for me to go to that tree... Um, to pay my respects, figuratively speaking, um, I just feel a sense of connection when he's still there. Um, and I think it's important for hunters to, to maybe get back to that a little bit in this day and age and um, maybe figure out, you know, exactly why we do what we do um, whenever we have an opportunity to visit a special place uh, such like my farm in northern Missouri. So um, I know as a whitetail hunter, that always gets me excited every year to, to visit that uh, section of the farm. Um, I just pay my tribute and my respects to him. On Drake's early season hunts, he wears Sitka's Equinox system. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit SitkaGear.com. So, we are here at the Sitka Gear Converge event. It's technically day three, I guess. We are outside. It's range day. 
you're going to hear some shotguns going off behind us. And we're here with Josh Boyd, one of the big game ambassadors for Sitka Gear. Thanks for doing this, Josh. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the invite, Mark. Yeah. Appreciate I, uh, it. I just met you two nights ago. Yep. From our friend uh, Matt McCormick. And he got you talking about the whitetail stuff you're doing. Yeah, out here he out did. West. He's good at that. Uh-huh. And that <laughs> got me pretty excited. So... I kind of want to pick your brain about what you're doing, chasing these whitetails out here in the mountains, and you're also obviously having a lot of success getting after elk and other big games. So, be warned. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to dig as much as I can out of you. <laughs> All right, just just but don't make me lie. I, I won't do that. I won't do that. <laughs> we won't ask you for specific locations. Um, so, uh, before we get started, though, can you just give us a little bit of your background? It sounds like you've done some very interesting things leading up to where you are now. What, where are you from? What do you do? So, yeah, I live in northwest Montana, um, right next to Canada, right next to BC. I'm 40 miles as the, as the crow flies from British Columbia, and I'm about 12 miles or so from the Idaho border. So, I'm way up in that kind of remote part of the state. Not a whole lot of folks make it up there and even you know people from montana they maybe pass through it occasionally but it's just yeah. it has to be a destination for you to go there out of the way yeah so that's where i live and i work for the u.s forest service up there which is a federal agency if people don't know <laughs> uh, we manage all the u.s forest service not to be confused with the national park service or the blm or fish and game as people call them um so we do mostly land management up there. Not we don't necessarily manage game. Yeah. So we'll manage habitat. And so with the Forest Service, I work in the field of hydrology, specifically uh, surface water. Yeah. So can you elaborate on that? Because I found that pretty interesting. When we were chatting the other day, specifically mm-hmm. the kind of stuff you're doing and paying attention to out there. Yeah. So I look at and measure runoff. So I'll measure snowpack in the winter to kind of calculate what kind of runoff we're going to get into our streams in the spring. Um, and then I also you said and then I'll measure that runoff and the sediment that goes along with it. So you know we're really concerned in that part of the world with bull trout and other native salmonids, trout species, mainly West Slope cutthroat. And uh, so we're we're measuring sediment. Uh, the bed sediment and also the suspended sediment because trout have a hard time surviving and uh, laying eggs and having those things reach you know young of the year yeah hatching out of the out of the gravel so so we measure a lot of that stuff for our fisheries biology types and then we also will look at and measure streams to see if they're functioning properly and if not come up with a plan to fix them or enhance them And that can range from anything between just adding a little bit of wood here and there or planting some stuff on the banks, riparian vegetation plantings, or it can be like full-on channel reconstruction. Wow. So um, that's like where we'll we'll completely build a whole new channel and then put the river in it. And and hopefully in a natural way. We're not channelizing it. We're actually unchannelizing it. So we're... Sometimes we're putting sinuosity back into it, and we're putting our pools back into it, and riffles and runs and all the features that go along with it. So repairing things that have been damaged in some way through, I'm assuming, man-made actions in the past? Generally, yes. It can, you know, it could be from a wildfire, but it also, most of the time we're dealing with historic 
man, uh, mining activities, oh, yeah. like uh, plaster mining, and a lot of it is uh, also riparian vegetation removal. So, turn of the last century, there was a lot of uh, uh, logging in that country. We did, there, you know, the technology just wasn't there to build roads, mm -hmm. so they used the most convenient way to get the timber out, which was either build a, a narrow gauge railroad up the valley bottom and cut trees on both sides, yeah. which means that they're right next to the creek, or they just went up the creek and cut trees and skidded them into the into this river stream, dammed everything up, let the water back up, and then splash knock that dam over they call them splash dams okay. and then just do log drives down these rivers so in order to get their wood down into the main system they had to cut all the wood out of the stream and then they're dry and then they cut all the wood off the sides of the streams and you know it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to figure out what that's going to do to yeah. your due to your habitat sounds brutal so where i live it's it's very moist we get a lot of rain we get a lot of snow um, it's a very different hydrology up there compared to the rest of Montana. So when people think trout fishing Montana, they think the Gallatin and the Madison and these great big meandering cottonwood type deals. We don't really have a whole lot of that. Ours are like big cedar, big spruce, a lot of larch, some ponderosa, a little bit of cottonwood, but it's like big, heavy. It's kind of like temperate rainforesty type stuff. Kind of, yeah, uh, yeah. It's we, it's Pacific Maritime say, like Pacific Northwest influenced. Type deal. Yes. Yeah. Huh. So how long have you been doing that? Um, since I got out of college, uh, almost twenty years, wow. eighteen years. So. So it's been a while. Do and you it's it's a learn. You know, it's it's. I didn't just jump right in and start doing it. Yeah. It definitely takes years and years and years to learn learn so, what you're doing. So when you look at the health of our waterways, in riparian areas like that. What direction are we headed since you started? Do you feel like things have been improving or are they declining and you're just feeling like you're patching up the holes as best as you can? Where are we going? That's a good question. Um, I think we're improving overall. Um, I, you know, there are some systems that I, I have a keen eye on and they are they're unraveling. Are they? You know, every year I see a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. But overall, like on the national forest up there, I would say they're improving or 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 just maintaining. Yeah. Um, and we've got a lot of watersheds that are in, in great shape. So um, it's yeah. There, but we have a few bad apples. Yeah. And sometimes those influence down. You know, the drainage. You know, other other pieces right. down downstream. So what type of thing would be like? You don't need to say specifics, but what would an example of the types of impacts be that you're seeing in one of these bad apples that are making them that way in your eyes? Well, so w once these rivers sort of become destabilized, they tend to just make they they tend to just keep unraveling. So what happens is the vegetation gets removed from the banks, so you have highly erodible banks, mm -hmm. um, and we have and that's what we have. We have a lot of glacial till up there. And it's it's easily erodible. It is input into the system in a in a large manner. I guess large quantities go in when we start seeing um, banks coming apart. Massive volumes come into the channel, and so when you start filling your channels up with sediment, coarse sediment usually, um, they fill up, so they lose capacity. So when they lose capacity, they spread out. 
so they start moving towards a more of a braided condition. Um, and there's a lot of channels that are naturally braided and they usually have a really high sediment supply. Like the, you think of like the outwash of like glaciers in Alaska, they're all braided, high sediment and that's natural. But a lot of these weren't naturally braided. So what you see is just, just continuous unraveling. And there's just so much sediment put into the system that it just can't move it out because uh, it's losing stream power. So you fill in the channel, you lose capacity, it spreads out into a larger area, you lose um, energy. So then it, can't, it, then it's like it sets it back another step. Yeah. And when you when it shallow when it spreads out like that, I imagine it's getting shallower, which I imagine makes it more susceptible to warming temperatures as well. Absolutely, I was just going to mention that. So yeah, you get shallow water. You get increased temperatures, and you have you lose habitat, i.e. pools. Yeah. Bad for fish. Not good for fish. And we have a threatened species up there, the bull trout. Yeah. And we have some sensitive and uh, species of concern as well, the West Slope cutthroat, and we have a native rainbow, the red band rainbow. Um, they all require cold, clean water. So when you start getting shallow dirty warm water it's tough on them yeah i imagine so that's that drives a lot of the work that i do interesting yeah and so to get back to your original question some of the stuff i see that's causing impacts are say bridges being undersized or culverts being too small so they can't pass the flow and so they um they squeeze the channel down into a real constriction and basically shotgun like it's going through a, a fire nozzle yep. and it squirts out the other sides and sometimes it'll cause a head cut you know downstream okay or we have a flood event and the pipe can't handle the flow and it will flush it washes the road out yeah and all that road sediment gets washed down the channel so those are some some modern day impacts that we deal with um, and that can be from private industrial logging company land or it can even be on forest service land we have a lot of a lot of pipes that are that were put in in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, by our standards today, they're they're too small, mm-hmm. and they're re- reaching the end of their lifespan. So um, it's time to replace them, but it's expensive and to do. Funding, and we have tons of them. We have a we have a big wish list, and we work on them as we get money trickling in. But it's tough. So that's I want to talk about that. I want to talk about funding. Um, being a Forest Service employee, mm-hmm. how What's your perspective on, I mean, there's, for a long time there's been this kind of talk, but it's been a little bit louder lately as far as bashing on the feds, saying that they're mismanaging our federal lands, and because of that, these federal lands should be going to the states or private interests. So being within that organization, how does that make you feel? What do you think about that uh, from the inside? Yeah, it's it's tough. So, I, you know, I live locally, spend all my money locally, and I grew up there, so I mean, I consider myself a local. Mm-hmm. And it's tough to hear your neighbors and your, you know, your fellow citizens in the area kind of bash on the feds about how we just need to do this or do that. And you know, that's one opinion. But then we also have other opinions that we have to consider. Um, so, yeah, you know, the, the anti-federal government sentiment is fairly high in that neck of the woods that I live. I mean, it's 80%. I mean, don't quote me. It's roughly 80%. It might be more, might be slightly less, but 80% federal land. So it's a big block of 
of federal land. And so I thought you were going to say it's 80, 80% of the people are anti federal lands. I was like, whoa. Oh, well, it, I don't know what that number is. It yeah. very well could be, but sometimes, oh, some days it seems that way. <laughs> but, you know, we, you know, we try to manage it the best we can with the amount of money that we're given. Um, and we seem to be given less money every year, every budget cycle. It's like declining budgets. Cost of livings go up. I mean, everything's on the increase. Inflation, you name it. But our budgets are either flat or declining, mm-hmm. which means we're getting less money overall and we were, we were talking about this at breakfast the other day the 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 politicians that are calling out the forest service and saying well, they they're mismanaging the lands they can't do a good job they're doing a horrible job well they are the ones that are slashing your budgets so they are creating your inability to be able to do your job the way you should be that and then pointing at you and saying it's your fault right and making that as a reason for them to be able to say oh we should sell them right. we should get rid of this that's kind of the way i understand it yeah and that seems like a yeah. Just a crock job to me. Yeah. So the the idea is, um, so this is, I'm speaking as a private citizen yes. now, um, but the way I see it is uh, those politicians, they're, they're kind of set out to sort of trip us up intentionally so they can turn it over to the state. They might actually, some of them might actually believe the state could do a better job managing all that property, all that land, but... The state of Montana doesn't have a budget to fight Mm -hmm. the fires that we do, um, which is a huge chunk of our budget, by the way. Yeah. Um, And and let alone try to fix a lot of these, you know, undersized pipes and bridges and, you know, unraveling roads and rivers. Maintaining trails. The road maintenance backlog is enormous. Oh, I can imagine. So the state of Montana can't do it, so... The theory is, or it's been thought that, well, in order to pay for some of that stuff, they're going to have to sell some of that land off or yeah. develop it, yeah. lease it, do whatever, graze it. Who knows what they plan on doing with it, but um, overall, it's not good for the average American no, sportsman. Not at all. Or just recreationist. Yeah, if you but hike, bike, whatever. Yeah, I do all that stuff. Yeah. I hike, bike, fish. I like to bird watch. I... You know, there's all sorts of stuff, and I do it mostly on, on public land. Yeah, it's it's scary. Yeah, it hearing is. Hearing those things and then seeing that stuff get momentum. Right. And frustrating. Oh, it, yeah, it can be very frustrating. But um, So working for the Forest Service can be pretty rewarding, though, at times. I imagine. So, yeah, if you can separate. So I'm a pretty much a grunt on the ground, out in the field all the time, and it allows me to, like, separate myself from a lot of that stuff. Um so all the budget and policy and all that stuff gets dealt with at a higher yeah. level than me. And I'm thankful for that. And I've made a conscious effort to kind of keep it that way because I really like what I do. I like being outside and I like seeing tangible effects. Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. can totally see that. Finishing, That's got to be really rewarding. Fishing, uh, finishing a project is is really fun and exciting. Yeah. And even if it doesn't work the way you think it might or f- or fail for that matter, it's like you learn something and you're going to go out with more enthusiasm the next time out. Well, it's sure. got to be cool as a, as a hunter and angler, too, and just outdoor recreationists in general. I mean, I feel like all of us, at least at least I do, and I think many, look at these places, and we there's, we get so much out of it, so much enjoyment from these wild landscapes that we can hunt and fish and bike and camp and everything. And I feel like if you use these places enough, you enjoy them enough, eventually we all get to a point where we say, wow, 
I sure hope we can leave this here for our kids and our kids' kids or leave it better. And it's got to be pretty neat in your position and in, in it's your job, you are active, actually doing tangible things to make that a reality. Right. That's yeah, cool. It, it really is. So I have a I have a daughter that's about to turn four, and she came down last summer. Uh, a coworker and I were working on a, a major, major stream restoration project. It had, it was five years in the planning and implementation. Uh, we had a lot of heavy equipment down there, scraping out a new channel, putting wood in, putting rock in, dropping structures in, and and just rebuilding all the features. And uh, my family came down one day, middle of the day, just to visit, to see what it looked like. And she was running around, jumping up on the rocks and the logs and looking at it. And um, I t- and so the, the end goal for that project is to have, you know, giant trees growing there on the banks, holding it all together. Right. At the, you know, but I probably won't see it. Mm-hmm. But it's going to happen in her lifetime. And I hope she can remember that she was there and what it looked like. I mean, she was three and a half at the time. She probably won't. She's pretty smart, but just <laughs> I don't think she will. But we have photos, and I, cool. we, I have a ton of video footage of it, um, of us doing the work. So it'll be interesting to see um, see what she thinks later on in her yeah. life. No worries. <coughs> Excuse me. I have uh, no problem. I got I'm getting over a cold. It's, it happens to the best of us. So I can see that being incredibly rewarding. Mm-hmm. Just like a very cool feeling to be able yeah. to see that stuff and have your kids someday be able to look back on that. Yeah, so That's yeah, the, the the total success of a project probably won't be measured within my career, Yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah, it's long-term stuff. Yeah, for sure. Think think long-term. Yeah. And it's, but in the meantime, we're, we're doing what we can and uh, trying to get good work done out there. Yeah, yeah. so that's good stuff. But Thanks. you're also doing some good stuff in the woods when you're out chasing some critters. And you were telling me that you, in addition to being ambassador for Seca, you also did some writing too. Is that right? Yes. What was yes. that? What were you doing there for a while? Um, well, I started writing uh, for some ver- various magazines. I think my very first published article was in Bowhunter. And I, I kind of was looking at some of the stuff that was out there and just wasn't reading anything that I really wanted to read about. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to read about adventure. I wanted to read about sweaty, bloody toil and hard work. And I wasn't seeing that. In a, I mean, I would. I would see certain certain writers would sure. definitely gravitate towards that stuff. But I just wanted to write about it. So I'd Real get, stuff. Yeah, so I'd get some ideas in my head, and I would just kind of put it on paper. And then uh, then I'd wor- massage it a little bit, and then I would... Eventually, I decided to submit some stuff and just kind of broke into writing. I mean, it was like I never got anything turned down that I submitted, but I wasn't, like, trying to write for a living either. Sure. It was just sort of a hobby. And so that's kind of how that started. I just just started writing what I wanted to read about. And um, the pro- my process of writing is pretty pretty inefficient because <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm a, you know I'm a scientist I can't yeah. I don't write creatively very well so it takes a while to get those juices going yeah so you're writing like a report and then yeah. you have to <laughs> right, right. transform that into an enjoyable article right? right so yeah so I I started writing about that and then I did a few gear, gear reviews for some various magazines and then uh, lately I've been I did a, I wrote a column for um Corey Jacobson had an elk hunting magazine a few years ago. 
I wrote the backcountry hunting column for that because I do most a lot of backpack hunting, backcountry stuff yep. for elk and mule deer. Um, and uh, now I'm kind of writing for another website, just off and on, doing nice. mostly product review stuff. Cool, cool. Because um, that's kind of there. It's a gear driven website, so. So you've written for who? Who all now? Eastman's. Eastman's. Eastman's bow hunting, bow and arrow when it was still around. Um, bow hunting, bow hunter, and seems like there's somebody else. Rock slide is a website I've yep. written for. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it seems like there's somebody else, but. Yeah, just a just a handful. Good slate, though. So you 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 have a, a unique distinction as a Western hunter because you are, as I understand it, you were on the cover of Eastman's at one point mm-hmm. with a whitetail. The whitetail, which I don't think a whole lot of guys out here give a crap about them, unfortunately. No. But you, it was you do. Yeah, it was it was surprising, and I, it, you know, it was an animal. Well, I mean, we have nice whitetails out west, and. I was really surprised that they put it on the cover, because um, they have a selection of a lot of oh, a lot yeah. of just nice, beautiful animals they could pick from. But uh, apparently, this was an impressive enough whitetail, and I had I submitted enough photos that they really liked it. I mean, they were going to publish my story no uh-huh. matter what, because they they really liked all the images, and it was a decent story. But yeah, they picked it for a cover, which was kind of surprising. But yeah, I was. How how big of a buck was that? Um, he ended up being like 180 something. Ooh. He gr- <laughs> he grossed like 182, I think. But he had a he had a weird sticker, kind of a like a weird inline, that was sort of weird. It, it dropped his net score. Yeah, nets are for fish. I keep hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> but he was still like netted. He netted like 170 something. That's a giant. Yeah, it's a big western, wa- western yeah, white. Yeah, it's a big white tail anywhere. So, can you tell us that story? Yeah, so I killed, it goes back, it starts the previous season. Oh, nice. So I, I shot a really nice mule deer with my bow, like September 18th or something, and I didn't have any other tags anywhere. So I killed an elk, killed an antelope, killed a mule deer, and so then I didn't have tags in Idaho or anywhere else, so I was just kind of floating around, just sort of felt like a, a lost child. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have anything to hunt in October or November. So I did a ton of scouting in uh, November, just during the general rifle season. Uh-huh. And so I started poking around, looking for a new, couple new whitetail spots, because we have, we have a lot of whitetails in that part of the world. And I, uh, I did some scouting, and I found some big rubs, and I didn't see any big deer, but I decided to go check out this area that I've always kind of wanted to check out. So I... I thought, well, I'm going to do a little trail run through there. There's some old logging roads that are kind of grown up. So I was on a trail run. It was the weekend after rifle season ended. And I just, like, popped over this little tiny rise, and there was a giant buck standing there, like, at 40 yards. Wow. Dark chocolate antlers, still rutting, still after a doe. And he trotted into the into the timber. He's kind of right on the edge of this little clear cut. And he, he was only, yeah, he was close. He trotted into this, uh, into this patch of trees. And I, I saw him, and I thought he was kind of going away from me. And I thought that thing is a giant deer. That had to be a 170 inch deer. So I went back to my house and I called my buddy at home. He's like, "Man, I saw him. I saw a monster." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, right. Whatever. How big? How big is he?" And I'm like, oh, "He's got to be 170 inches." And he's like, "Oh, okay, cool." 
So then I just became obsessed with this buck. I thought, man, they're going to be shedding here towards the end of December, first part of January. It was a nice light winter. I knew he was a local buck. I knew he didn't get pushed in there from the snow because that's part of the issue with where I live. A lot of our whitetails get pushed. I mean, they'll be their summer range can be 15 miles away. But it was still almost summer-like conditions. Yeah. I mean, there was no snow in the mountains that year. And then that winter, it just basically so this rained. Was, this was, you're chasing these whitetails in the mountains. This isn't yes. like river bottom stuff. No, no, no. This, this is, is mountains. mountains. Yeah, it's big, heavy conifer forests. Wow. So, so, so different yeah, than 99% it, of whitetail hunting, right? Yeah. And I think there's probably similar stuff would be like in the mountains of Virginia, West okay. Virginia, yeah. stuff like that maybe. Yeah, that makes potentially. sense. Um, never been there, never hunted them, but that's kind of what I'd guess. So I saw this buck. I decided to figure out where he lives, how he's living, and see if I can shoot him the next year. So I found his sheds from the previous year, but I couldn't find his sheds from the year that I spotted him. But wow. I saw giant rubs all over the place, and I kind of put together this puzzle. I'm like, okay, I'm going to put a stand here, 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 and I'm going to hunt it before the rut kicks in. I think I can probably kill this buck if he if he keeps to the same patterns yeah. like because so, these rubs i were finding were giant like they look like elk rubs but they were definitely white tail they were geez. way low and they were full white tail here but they had been the key i thought was they were rubbed more than one year yeah it looked to me like they were rubbed multiple years in a row so so if you don't mind i want to pause you i'm going to try to break all this down as we're going mm-hmm so you mentioned you found those sheds. So I may, first I want to know how you're, you know, what kind of places you're looking for these sheds, or how are you identifying where you think his bedroom is, or things like that. I mean, with these mountain whitetails, mm. do you think they have a consistent place, or is, are they roaming all all over the place, or how do you how do you scout in that way to find these rubs, to find the bedroom, to find the sheds? Well, I I guess it's like anything else. Um, if you just pay attention to the details, so everything's real subtle. So. You're in a you're in a mountainous timbered area, but it's not all just like continuous homogeneous mm-hmm. cover. There's patches of openings, there's patches of really dense timber, there's thicker, brushier areas, draws, yep. benches. And so they utilize all that stuff differently. And so you can kind of tease out like how they where they feed, where they might travel to and from, where they might be bedding. That type of stuff. So I'm, I'm looking for that stuff as I'm shed hunting. And when I'm shed hunting, I'm just going everywhere, trying to learn everything about that area. And so I just travel every trail. It's basically, I'm just gridding miles and miles of terrain. And like documenting everything yeah. you saw along the way. Mm-hmm. And I was also picking up other nice sheds. So nice. I'm like, man, there's more than just this deer in here. Wow. I definitely am hunting this, no matter what. But I really, <laughs> I really want to kill this big buck, or at least yeah. see him again yeah. to validate the my original sighting uh-huh. i thought god he's got to be a giant but so anyway i scouted it picked up sheds figured out where i wanted to hunt, hang my stands and how'd you make that decision i was basically hanging them right where those rubs were okay so you're and, and i could i kind of had a couple like you could figure out that they were definitely in a line and so of course you have to figure out what your wind patterns mm-hmm. are going to do and they're pretty typical mountain wind patterns which means down slopes in the mornings and evenings and 
upslope in the day. Yeah, mostly thermal. Um, and so I had sort of some areas picked out and where I wanted to hunt it, where I wanted to hang, and how I wanted to hunt them. Like at what time of day? Was it going to be an evening site? Going to be a morning? That type of stuff. So, um, so this this so you're saying there's a line of rubs indicating some form of travel travel route or corridor was there some type of train feature or cover change like why do you think that he was traveling there um what was a little of both um so there was it was kind of some old logging activity so that's another thing that we deal with up there is that the the whole forest is in different ages Mm -hmm. you know it's it's some of it's been logged and is now 20 years old again some of it's old growth that could be right next to it and so they'll use those those breaks to kind of to to travel. So it's like an edge within it's within a, timber, but a, there's an edge. Within. Yeah, it's a subtle edge. Yeah. yeah. And they love those edges. They do. Yeah, they do. And you'll see it. They'll they'll hang out on a fresh clear cut, and they'll hang out on a twenty year old, thirty year old clear cut too. So that's kind of the stuff I was looking at. I was okay. keying in on, and I was seeing a pattern there. It's like, oh yeah, there's a rub here, and there's one here, and I remember seeing one over there. <laughs> And they're all big. They're all old. Definitely from the same buck. I found his sheds right there. It's like he's got to be right in here somewhere. But I never laid eyes on that buck again. In the whole time that I uh, was in there shed hunting. I saw a big buck that had shed one day. I was out hiking. And it could have been him. He had big floppy ears and a giant (laughs) neck and just a big brisket hanging down. But I never did see him until... This, it was the second night that I went in to, to hunt in November. So it was November. I waited till November. I figured I'm going to wait till November. Our whitetails rut a little later, maybe, than the Midwest. I'm not 100% sure, but it seems like pre-rut kind of kicks in hot and heavy maybe early November. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I, I had three, two stands up, and I wanted to hang a third one. So I hunted, I hunted a morning and I hunted one other evening in two different stands. And I thought, well, I'm gonna just go hunt this last place and get a stand up, and then I can really focus on um, timing and just putting some effort in. Yeah. So I, it was raining. We had like four days of straight rain up there. It was fair. The temperatures were fairly warm, probably in the 50s, but it's just that northwest nonstop drizzle. Yeah. So I crawled in crawled in up into the brush hiked in and i'm i mean i'm hiking in like a mile and a half probably wow to, to hang these stands so it was not like right next to a road no now here's a question related to that you know in the midwest when we're <coughs> planning on how to get into hunter places your access routes and exit routes are really important because mm-hmm. you're always trying to figure out how can i get to my stand without spooking these deer right is that i mean in this type of habitat i feel like that's really tough because there's cover everywhere there's super tough how do you do you worry about that yes I did. Um, you just go the extra effort not to go where you think they're living, mm-hmm. and that might mean walking across country through the through the brush, timber, to Which get to your it. stand in the dark. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> make sure your routes are well marked yeah. and you know where your trees at and you can find in the dark, type of thing. So you're so you're crawling in there. Yep, crawling in there. But this hunt, the the hunt that I killed this deer was an evening hunt. And I had a route picked out going in there, and um, I hiked in there early afternoon, 
climbed in the tree and hung my stand. So I'm using like screwing steps okay. and hang on stands. Okay. And and I just settled in. Nice quiet evening. The rain just kind of let up, and I started tickling some antlers together a little bit. And then I heard the same thing, like right out in front of me. There's kind of this old, grown-up clear-cut, heavy, kind of heavy regen. You know, it's probably 20-year-old regen. Okay. So you could see into it a little bit, but not very well. And I had my bow. I was bow hunting, and this was general rifle season. So, excuse me again. No, you're fine. <coughs> oh. Take a little drink. Not used to this dry weather. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> it's nice. Real dry here. Um, so I, I crawled in, started tickling the antlers, and out in front of me I could hear some antlers getting tickled together. Like, whoa, there's bucks right in front of me, huh. 50 yards out. In that thick stuff. In that thick stuff. And you could hear them just kind of clicking and clacking. And, and then I could kind of see, like, start glassing in there, and I could see little body parts and a little antler here and there. It ended up being three, like, small bucks like three and four point white tails which so when you say three and four that's a six or eight point yeah yeah for us yeah. eastern sorry about that yeah <laughs> that's all right i get confused <laughs> language barriers uh-huh, uh-huh. so sorry you um, got a few three and fours a couple three and fours are hanging out in there tickling and so i think my rattling kind of got them all excited and, and they're like they oh each yeah other they found each other and they started sparring and then they fed a little bit in front of me and then they'd tickle some more they just kept working past me to you know off to my right and they are, I mean, they never got more than 100 yards from me. And I and I could, eventually I could see them a little better. They got in some more open trees and I could see them feeding. And then they would spar. And then I looked over and I could see another buck showed up, about the same size. He just kind of walked out. And then they all, there's like four of them now, Jeez. just all kind of sparring, tickling, making quite a bit of That's racket. Cool. And I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. Heck yeah. Um, I'm going to try some doe bleats. So I made some, I was using some doe bleats just to see what their reaction uh-huh. was. And I thought, man, they're way over here off to my right. I need to be paying attention to what's off to my left. So I just kind of glanced back and out in that regen, I could see the top of this larch tree, like a 15 foot larch tree, just whipping back and forth. And I'm like, whoa, there's a buck rubbing that. I'm pretty sure. And uh, and then, like, it stopped, and then out walks this buck. I could see that he was just a big, heavy buck. But I couldn't tell exactly what he was because uh-huh. he kind of disappeared real quick in the trees. But he was coming on a beeline right down that edge that I was sitting on, uh-huh. and he was heading. He was going to go down. Eventually would have taken him downwind of those small bucks. He's probably going to go down and scent check them, and am see I right who to they think, were. Am I right to think that these deer are still, like, slick from the rain, so the real dark foreheads and glistening antlers? Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah, cool. That's a good way to paint the picture. Yeah, I'm imagining Yeah, so, this. yeah, they're very wet. Yeah, the antlers are just sheen, just oh, yeah. very shiny, almost red-looking. Wow. And uh, he was he popped out, and I could see he was all kind of puffed up and kind of bristling a little bit but coming definitely he's like oh mm-hmm. that is a big buck uh i don't know if it's that giant one i was looking for but i'm gonna shoot that one for <laughs> <Yeah>. sure <laughs> and and i didn't see him until he popped out 15 yards in front of me and i had my bow in my hand and he, was, he walked out broadside and i just kind of did a little little burp and mm-hmm. whack just nailed him perfect nice and uh, he whirled and he ran and i could see him fall over maybe 50 yards away. I love that. And I thought, oh, he's a big one. He's real heavy. But he looked like he had short tines because uh-huh. looking at him at an angle from my tree stand, 
and uh, but I could just the only he was just webbed. He just seemed webbed out. And I thought, God, he's just really massive. It's like that's a great, great deer. So I was all excited. Climbed down on my stand, went over there, and his head was kind of down in some brush when I got there. And I pulled his head out of the brush. I was like, oh, this thing is a big one. Real big. This is a really big one. So I was just ecstatic. And then I started looking at it. I was like, oh, this is definitely that deer that I was looking for. Is this so, that one that looks almost like it was related to a moose? That's the so one. So palmated. Mm-hmm. That's that the one. That was a crazy buck. Yeah, that thing is just a an absolute monster so yeah he he was i mean it's super rewarding i put a ton of time and effort into it um i have to say that when i was doing most of my scouting my wife was in grad school and wasn't living in uh in the area she was over in northern california no wait she's in washington doing her research stuff so i was living on my own so So i was like just a bachelor just (laughs) cruising around just yeah, doing whatever That's I nice. wanted. Yeah, it was nice. And uh, my wife, if yeah, she just thought I was a complete idiot. It's like, what are you doing? You're going to go shed hunting again after work till dark in the rain? Okay. Yeah, I think, I think our wives would uh, have a lot to relate to. <laughs> but they, she definitely knows it's a passion. Yeah. And she was super excited for me when I, oh, I bet. when I you know killed that deer. And she came in the next day with me and helped me butcher it up and pack it out and stuff like that that's cool yeah so she's been a you know that's so nice super, to have a supportive super supportive in that yeah. way that's so yeah. good off the send there's a oh yeah good lord we'll have to post this picture if you don't mind because the left side of this deer is nuts it's so widely palmated and the g3 has got this deep deep split on the left side Whew. That is a buck. Yeah. And so that's a public land deer. That's Uh, awesome. That's a public land buck. And, um, yeah, anybody can go hunt that spot. It's not easy. Yeah. But, um, and I haven't hunted that. I've killed, I killed a couple more deer in there after that. And they, they were all pretty nice. All right. We are going to take a real quick pause here for a word from our partners at Whitetail Properties, and our producer, Spencer Newharth, is going to take it from here. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Rich Ba, a land specialist out of southeastern Iowa. And Rich is going to be telling us about what factors are most important for a property to hold high numbers of big bucks. Okay, I think that uh, mature bucks are are always going to want to be in areas where they have a good thick cover. And good escape routes so that you know if they get pressured by a hunter or something they, they have a way to escape without going across wide open country so i look for properties with lots of thick cover um and you know one of the things you can do to improve that is you can you can plant native grasses you know in, in open fields or fields that don't have a lot of cover and then you can also do timber stand improvement work within your timber to uh, to make it thicker and more uh, enticing for for big deer to live in it Another thing in the Midwest where it gets really cold in the latter parts of the year is, is having property with south-facing slopes on them. Uh, south-facing slopes catch a lot more sun and are a lot warmer, and it's where uh, almost all the deer end up wanting to bed You know, when it gets really cold. So those are some of the things that, that I would look for. If you'd like to learn more or to see the properties that Rich currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash ba. That's B-A-U-T. 
GH. So, I mean, guys, when they think about heading out west, they usually are thinking about mule deer or elk or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there are some serious whitetail opportunities out here, aren't there? There are, yeah. Um, There's stuff in the river bottoms, Mm -hmm. um, and that's a lot of the stuff you see on, like, outdoor television. There's a lot of leased properties and outfitters, like, up on the Milk River or even, uh, like, right here. Yeah. Down here in the Yellowstone, Yellowstone. Valley. So, um, you got a mosquito on your Gosh, forehead. There's all sorts of mosquitoes. Yeah, there's the breeze dies down and those things come mm-hmm. out. We're, we're dealing with all sorts of stuff. We got wind, <laughs> we got mosquitoes, we got shotguns. <laughs> it is it is rough out here. Outdoor podcast. <laughs> I, we can't complain. Look at this. We've got <laughs> oh, it's incredible. Beautiful mountains all around us. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I've Look never recorded a podcast in such a pretty place. So this is this is pretty good. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm not going to complain at all. So so mountain whitetail hunting. Yes. I kind of pride a little bit of how you're doing stuff there, but talk to me a little bit more about the habitat that you're looking for. Is it is it Are you totally keying in on these logged out areas? Is that like if, if I were a new guy hunting in a forested mountainous region, whether it's West Virginia or one of these western states, I guess tell me more about finding them first. Um, in my neck of the woods, whitetails can be anywhere. Which is kind of confusing to a lot of people because everybody thinks they're they're hanging around ag or farm fields, which we have a little of that in the valley. I mean, there's some hay fields mm-hmm. on the old, down in the private stuff, but um, most of it is timbered. And our whitetails they live down in the valley bottom, but I've seen them up at like seven thousand feet. Wow, um, it's it's crazy. Yeah, the 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 biggest buck I've ever seen in my life was. Late August, I got f- dropped off in a helicopter to go on a f- to fight a fire, put out a small fire on this ridge that was probably four miles from any road, and it had to be six, over 6,000 feet, and I was walking down this ridge, and r- up in f- right in front of me, 20 yards out of his bed, stands a, it was over, it was well over 200 inch, not typical. This is a whitetail? Whitetail. Oh, a giant. Wow. Stood there, looked at me, and it just kind of sauntered off the ridge. But I honestly, I, <laughs> I wanted to go back and hunt that yeah. deer, but I, I don't know how you'd do it, honestly. It, there's no trail there. You've got this huge, immense ridge. I was like, what are you going to do? Are you going to yeah. go just sit on that? You're going to go hike four miles in and sit on this ridge all day and wait for him to maybe walk by you? Yeah. That's tough. It, it's really tough. <laughs> In any anywhere you go, he could have dropped into these big canyons that no, there's no trail, there's nothing, there's not even a logging road anywhere. There's a creek bottom in the down in the very bottom, and that's it. Wow. And so I don't. That buck probably died from a lion or something, mm-hmm. you know, or of old age. But so we have they can be anywhere, and they can be any size. You never know what's going to step out. That's probably not going to happen mm-hmm. for most people, but they're, they're, we have the genetics. Yeah, sure, sure sounds like it. Yeah, and they, they can reach an old age class because they have that cover to survive in. And pressure, pressure is pretty to, minimal. Relative yep. to a lot of places, people are white hunting. It's got to be minuscule. Right, right. We have a long season, and there's a reason we have a long season because yeah. we have very low pressure. So they can be anywhere, but if I'm like trying to narrow things down, probably burn areas, logging areas. Well, you stuff said like that? you said it earlier, edges. Yeah. Yep. 
anything that creates an edge. Yep. So a lot of that is logging in our part of the world mm -hmm. or fires if it's in the right spot, definitely. Um, or even like, a, you know, if you could find like some hay meadow or something. I was going to ask, you know. Or naturally occurring meadows, but they generally tend to like, they stick to to areas that aren't grassy. Hmm. They they like browse. Like the forbs yep. and mm -hmm. other different things like mm -hmm. that. So so is there any, so it sounds like you just covered it, but one of the things I was going to ask is where are we finding the feed? Like what's the preferred feed? So it's just random openings and these areas of regen mostly? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, they like, yeah, um, yeah burn areas and logging areas and they don't have to be clear cuts either they can be like a, a selective cut mm -hmm. just like a partial thinning anything to let some sunlight in and let that uh release the the uh forbs the yeah. the veg on the ground yeah you, you talked you talked about how rubs played a part in that one hunt mm -hmm. what about scrapes do you pay attention to scrapes at all you know i see scrapes all over the place and they might mean something but i haven't figured it out yeah doesn't play a part um, in what you're doing. Not, not for me. I haven't really utilized it. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely take note and be like, whoa, there's scrapes here, and there's a bunch of them, yep. and they're in a row. But I've never really seen a deer traveling a scrape line. Okay. I just, yeah, it just hasn't happened for me. Uh, speaking of scrapes, do you ever run trail cameras for whitetails? Is that a thing you've ever done before? Mm, or are you too busy with all the other things to? I have. I own one trail camera, and I set it up one time, and it got bit in half by a grizzly bear <laughs> <laughs> that is something that i don't think anyone on our podcast has ever had an issue with <laughs> wow. yeah yeah so That's i was something. like well i'm not doing this anymore yeah and yeah i don't know they're neat and all but i mean i like looking at people's trail cam photos yeah. they're pretty cool uh but i just i have no interest in it i just don't care uh, yeah. uh, i i like i guess i like to be surprised what's out there. I understand that. Yeah. I've won I've I've been conflicted on that. Like there's a lot of fun in seeing what's out there and then getting excited about that and going after that buck or whatever. But then there's also something really cool about when all of a sudden you hear that crack crack. Little crack yeah. crack crack and then you turn over your head and then something right giant steps out. You never what? saw this deer. Where does this guy come from? What is it gonna be? Yeah. yeah. That's a cool feeling. Yeah, and that is neat about that area too, is you just never know what you're gonna see. Yeah. It, I mean they you could have sheds from all these deer and you can have trail camera photos i have buddies that tr put trail cameras up and you know they think they know what's living there and they do for the most part but you just never know what's gonna step out and just show up like that buck living on that ridge yeah who knows he might have traveled 15 miles down valley to go rut uh -huh. in his pocket of does somewhere yeah so just never know yeah but i never heard about him getting killed I think he'd have made, made some, some splash in Yeah, the area. I'd say so. Taking a buck out of oh. that area of the country. Yeah. So the the neighboring forest, the Flathead National Forest, uh, it it is uh, it has quite a reputa reputation for producing giant whitetails. Yeah. Mainly, you know, from the 80s and 90s. Hmm. So it was back, a lot of those deer, there's a, like a bunch that are 190 plus. Wow. Yeah, there's some giant ones from the from Flathead. I never really knew, but I, um, th this has got me thinking, like, what a cool, just doing a mountain whitetail hunt and, like, do it like an elk, like a spike camp. Like, backpack in, mm, yeah. set up a spike camp deep in there, yeah. and then chase whitetails in that kind of way. Where, right. Like, 
you got a backpack full of all your gear. Then you throw a tree stand on top of that. I mean, you have a very heavy load. Right. But what an adventure of a whitetail hunt. Oh, for sure. So th- there's areas like that are pretty famous in in certain circles of the whitetail hunting world, like the Swan River country, mm-hmm. Swan Valley. I've been up in there. So okay. A ton of whitetails. Yep. Yeah. There's there's been some giants killed yeah. in there. So not as many, though, in, in recent years. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, changes in habitat, um, fairly print, uh, uh, dense predator populations, you know, the full suite of predators, right. grizzly bears, black bears, mountain lions, and wolves. Yeah. Uh, we've had some hard winters, some back-to-back hard winters, and it just kind of adds up to a complex problem. And also vegetation management is probably part of it. You know, the Forest Service isn't isn't cutting as much timber. Right. They're not creating as much browse and openings and whatnot. And I think maybe our winter range is becoming more dense, mm-hmm. g- densely grown or something. I don't know. That might have an effect. Interesting. So there's a whole bunch of aspects to it. It's complex. Yeah, yeah. Back to something you were talking about a little bit earlier with the <coughs> again. Um, do, you th- do you find that calling and rattling works pretty well? I, I, I'm, I'm assuming... As an outsider, I would think, hey, I could see rattling and calling working pretty good in these areas because there's not as much pressure. And it seems like, at least from my experience out in the West, there's more balanced age structure mm-hmm. of these deer. Like, comparatively in Michigan, it's like, like where I hunt, I'm seeing like 80% of the bucks I see are year-and-a-half-olds. And then oh. maybe one three-and-a-half-year-old or maybe one four-and-a-half-year-old. I mean, it's crazy. Right. When I came out here, I'm seeing very nice balanced one, two, three, four. I mean, and a lot of older bucks and... Um, the buck to doe ratio seems somewhat decent compared to some of the places I'm at. Is is that accurate? I guess is my assumption accurate there? And then B, does that lead to pretty good reactions to calling? Do you think? Yes, and yes. So yeah, we have a. Our, it seems like our age age structure is healthy. We have a lot of mature deer, and they can live to be fairly old, um, which creates competition. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've had great success. <coughs> oh man, sorry about that. No problem. Man, it's dry in my throat. Back of my throat's dry. Um, I would say pre-rut rattling works really well. Yeah. The uh, it seems like once those those big bucks start cruising, though, there's nothing gonna bring them in. I mean, it, you might have that anomaly where it'll happen sure. and it works, but I don't go for it after I start seeing them chasing really hard. Yeah. They're going to be on those does. Yep. Yeah, and they'll push them into these little secluded pockets, and you might not see them for a few days. Yeah. There'll be times when I'll be out whitetail hunting, and I'll see, you know, 40 does and not one buck. And it's like, what is going on? Well, that means that that's like the the peak. Interesting, because they're locked down. They're locked down. Yeah, that makes sense. They just disappear. And then three days later, everywhere you look, there's a buck running somewhere across the hillside through a clear cut or yeah. you know jumps across the road in front of you so yeah i need to get out here during the rut because when i was sitting i'm like with all the bucks i'm seeing i cannot imagine what the rut must be like out here because the competition must be just intense yeah i don't it i wouldn't compare it to texas mm. it's nothing like that yeah but it's definitely i'd say it's healthy I yeah bet. yeah and it's it's definitely fun for a whitetail people they get pretty excited about it when they come out and, and hunt i would so, think so yeah and yeah. we get a fair bit of pressure from like uh we get a lot of washington and idaho guys coming okay. over um and we'll see you know places from we've i've seen michigan guys yeah, wisconsin wow. guys coming out. Came out Mm-hmm. so it's not unknown 
it's just not super popular and it's it's tough hunting yeah you know it's not it's not easy easy you gotta be prepared to to move to hike to right. struggle a little bit right yeah it's not like what walking 50 yards to the tree stand in the backyard and sitting there right yeah and it can be intimidating because it's you're hunting in big mountains and it's it's hard to figure out where to start yeah so if you have the basics start thinking about edges and think about where they like to bed and just those little weird subtle key components that they all need you'll you'll have it figured out speaking of bedding have you found i don't know if you've had just maybe you haven't needed to go to this level of detail but do you find that they're bedding with any certain types of terrain features in mind like in the east and the midwest and like the slider hill country we see these bucks Lots of times bedded on ridges, little knobs off of ridges and stuff where they can have the wind coming down their backs and they can look out ahead of this. I mean, do you see anything like that happen with these whitetails in mountain country too? Or I, is it a little more random? Uh, it seems to be pretty random, but they will, I guess they do prefer places like that. Okay. They kind of like, and that's kind of like what a mule deer will do. Right. Or elk. Right. They'll bed where they can see below them and smell what's coming from behind them. And that happens to be a lot of these little benches. Mm-hmm. and key features but yeah sense. now we're talking features though one of the things that i like to key in on on that country are like like little dips in a ridge line like a saddle type like line. a yeah, little saddle sometimes subtle sometimes very distinct but those deer will they'll you know they'll traverse the side of that thing and then drop into a saddle to cross over the other side to see yep. what's see what's back there so they generally don't travel our ridge tops like uh you think that's just to avoid being skylined or just i think it's just just laziness to be honest with you it's just the most efficient way not laziness but yeah Yeah. i mean everybody wants to conserve energy right 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 so at least resistance mm -hmm. so i think that's what it is makes sense yeah and humans seem to travel ridge tops a lot a lot of trails and stuff probably yeah just yeah it's just easy walking Mm -hmm. for us so side hilling's hard for us and deer are a little better at it So, yeah, it seems like that maybe they do it to avoid. Maybe predators, too. I don't know if cats cruise ridge lines or not. I would assume they would. Do you see it? Have you ever seen a cat? Well, any type of big game on out west? Oh, yeah. I see mountain lions all the time. Really? Yeah, we have tons of them. And, uh, yeah, I see them. I feel like they're kind of the ghosts of the woods most often. It's pretty crazy when you do see one. I'm trying to think when the last time I saw one was. It seemed like it was just a couple years ago. But yeah, I I would say maybe about every three or four years I'll see a lion. Wow. We, you know, that hasn't been treed by hounds. Right. Um, right. We've got a lot of guys that chase cats in that part of the world. Pretty a cool seeing one of those out there. It is really neat. A, ever had a close call? See one up close? Or are they always off in the distance, kind of slinking away? They usually just slink away. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I have seen a few that um, didn't know I was there, but most of the time they do. That's cool. And they're heading away. That'd be awesome. Yeah, see. it's pretty They're cool. Quite an animal. They are. They're amazing. That tail is just immense. When you see it hanging off the back of them, it's like, whoa! It's kind of shocking, <laughs> like how big it is. It's yeah. a big cat. Yeah, yeah. They're really cat. neat. And then when you walk up, like I've been on some hound hunts before, and you walk up to one in a tree, you'll have four, three, four, or five dogs at the bottom of the tree just barking like crazy. But when you walk up, that lion is just looking at you, and, and only you. It's just like watching you walk around. It doesn't even care How's about the feel? dogs. It's it's kind of eerie. Yeah. Yeah. I think you'd get used to it as a as a houndsman, but I'm not. I'm not a houndsman. Yeah. 
that. There's, and maybe I'm maybe I'm weird like this, but there is like a certain something. I, I enjoy the idea of knowing I'm not the only predator out there, and knowing that I'm maybe not the top of the food chain. It's humbling, and it's there's a little more electricity in the air. I feel like when you know there's some other critters out there that are, you know, above above you on that chain, and doing the same thing you're trying to do though too. I agree. No, I, it's uh, it it adds a different feel knowing that you're in a intact ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I think if they weren't there, it just you know something's missing. A little emptier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's nice to have predators. I like them. I mean, I, and I think they need to be managed mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I have no issues with sharing the world with those things. I mean, they're, they're making a, uh, they're trying to make a living out there. Right. And it's a tough place. I can't imagine. you got to have respect for that. Yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah, if I get tired and hungry, I'm just going to go home. Go to <laughs> yeah, <laughs> grab something to eat, <laughs> snuggle up by the fire uh-huh. with a cup of coffee. Yeah, they're out there in the rain. Yeah, not these guys. <laughs> trying to eat something every Man. day. Yeah, yeah it's insane. Existence. It is. It's amazing. And, uh, yeah, they're amazing creatures. So I don't – I've seen a few wolves out and about. Yeah. Um, but it's so thick. You just – it's tough to get a good view of things. Mm-hmm. You know, you just see maybe a glimpse of them going across the road. As you're, you know, I'm out in the woods a lot driving yeah. around at work, so I see a lot of stuff That's cool. at work. But usually it's just a, a streak. I was like, whoa, that was a big black dog with a collar. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely a wolf. <laughs> yeah, grizzly encounters. Had many of those? Um, seen a bunch. Yeah. Yeah, no real, I wouldn't say encounters. Um, they usually just turn around and get the heck out of there. Just want to do their thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They... It, it, up where I live, they're pretty. Uh, there's not very many. I mean, there's like the pop. They estimate the population to be like 55 or okay. something, and that's for the entire ecosystem there. Yeah, so pretty, you, it's pretty sparse. They're pretty rare. Yeah, they think there should be roughly about a hundred living there, but okay. so they're roughly halfway there for recovery. Interesting. But yeah, you'll see them every once in a while. Saw so, looked to me like a kind of a younger male grizzly this year when I was out spring bear hunting. Nice. Um, he was standing on the road, just kind of wondering what the heck I was. <laughs> but, yeah, it was pretty neat to see. Yeah, yeah, you see him every once in a while. I don't see him every year, but, I mean, a guy probably could if he wanted to go find him, mm-hmm. look for him, and find some grizz every year. Yeah. This spring when we were out, we were down this neck of the woods this spring earlier, and we saw 13 mm. right around here. South That's insane. Yeah, over the course of like a week. That is awesome. Yeah. yeah. They're a whole different beast. When you Ooh, see yeah. them, they just have a whole different demeanor. Yes. Seems like. And the 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 temperature in the room rises <laughs> when they're somewhere around there. Oh, when yeah. You know when you're looking at one of those, everything is a little bit more yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah, this, this part of the state is, it's dense with grizz. Yeah. 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 It sounds like. Sounds like they're working on delisting. So I heard it happened. Didn't mm. it get announced like yesterday that, that they're, they're going to do it? Right? Towards it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's interesting. Yeah. It's a whole other conversation. Oh yeah, absolutely. But and one I don't know much about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you can read the paper, get more information, yeah, and what lots, I know. There's lots to talk about that. So we've been talking about western whitetail stuff, but there's also a whole lot of guys 
in Michigan or Ohio or New York or Alabama, all these guys that dream of coming out here someday to chase elk or mule deer, mm-hmm. antelope or something like that. Do you have any advice for someone who, who wants to come out and try hunt like that? I mean, you've been living this and doing this your whole life, but mm-hmm. if you were new, um, what do you wish that you knew at the beginning that maybe these guys could pick up from you now? Hmm. I would say guys that want to come out and, and just experience a Western hunt, just to just dip their toe in the, in the stream, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say come out and try an antelope hunt. Yeah. Try an, a rifle antelope hunt uh, slash mule deer combo hunt or something, rifle. Because um, you can do that out on the prairie. Mm-hmm. The logistics are fairly easy. You see a lot of animals. You kind of figure out what it's like to drive out this way. Yeah. Because it can be a long drive, and that can be oh, yeah. logistically kind of a nightmare and costly. So yeah. you kind of get that worked out of the system and figured out and maybe how to do things a little more efficiently. Um, I would I would say start out with that. But if you're just dying to hunt uh, mule deer or elk in the backcountry or even the front country, just go with low expectations, trophy size. Mm-hmm. Everybody comes out with a number in their head, it seems like. I want a 170-inch mule deer and I want a 320-inch bull. <laughs> Come out here and try it. Yeah. And then shoot an elk yeah wherever shoot any elk and pack it out yes and just see what you think of it experience that experience it yeah and you might think this is the worst thing i've ever (laughs) done i am never doing that ever again so i mean everybody likes to research gear and they like to think about the glory of success Mm -hmm. but i just say to the guys that want to come out try it just go small think small mm-hmm. and 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 simple at first guys i you read about it all the time on uh on rock slide guys that are coming out for the first trip and they want to go do a 10-day backpacking trip for elk solo <laughs> like are you kidding me he that is going to be a nightmare of a trip yeah unless you are a person of just another world that's a tough hunt. Uh-huh. I mean, for anyone. I, yeah. Let it's, alone it's, first time. Right. I live I live in some rugged country, and I hunt solo all the time. And I backcountry hunt solo quite a bit. And just getting an elk out of the mountains is unbelievably hard by yourself. And to do it in the backcountry, it's, it's crazy. No, I can't. So, um, yeah, I'd say just set realistic goals. And, um, yeah, take some baby steps. Don't just dive head right on. Just, you know, you're not going to just dive straight into a, a stream and think you're going to come out looking great. No. It's going to be tough. You might, it might happen, but boy, it's going to be rare. Yeah. So do some research. Get the right gear. Do, do research on the gear, but also just, yeah, do research on what you think you might be able to handle. Which is tough to do, and that's why I say take baby steps when you come out. Yeah, and I like your advice to to shoot the first thing you have an opportunity at, or shoot something yeah. because that is a big part of that experience. And 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 for me, it was like in the moment it might feel like the worst, but it's it's the best. It is when it's all said and done. You did that like the after I packed my first elk out, and after like, what was it? I don't know. We think we did like 16 miles that day, up and down, up and down. And we dropped that pack. It was like I'd shot my bull at 8 in the morning. By 9 o'clock at night, we finally made it to back to the minivan. We took a minivan out. Nice. <laughs> made it back to the minivan after 
11, 13 hours of whatever this was and dropped that pack, collapsed on the ground, and laid there for 30 minutes just trying to breathe. And I was like, oh, am I still alive? But looking back on that, that is like the coolest thing I've ever done. Yep. You were more, yeah, you were probably never more alive yes, at that point. Absolutely. Yeah. And have the, to get that opportunity is even if it was a, a year and a half old cow or a great big bull, no matter what, or a mule deer, I mean, experience that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then you can move on to bigger and better and greater hunts. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you, you kind of learn. It takes a while to learn an area. We were talking about this earlier. It's just nice to go someplace new mm-hmm. and put boots on the ground and just learn it. Explore. Yeah. Have an adventure. Yes. doesn't have to be a backcountry kill-yourself adventure. Just but have an adventure. Keep yeah. an open mind. Be curious. And inquisitive and, and figure stuff out. That's yeah, It's super fun. It is. Guys that want to come out and hunt, they'll, most of them love it. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the whitetail world, it's easy to get hung up on two things. It's easy to get hung up on hunting the same place all the time. A lot of guys just hunt their little piece of property that they grew up on or that they have access to, and so they always do that. Or it's easy to get hung up on the big buck mentality because the media pushes giant antlers all the right. time. So there's those two things that's so easy to get stuck in that kind of rut. Right. And I just, I've been fortunate to have some opportunities to go some new places. And, man, it is so worth just try get out of that rut. Don't worry about the antlers. Don't worry about going outside your comfort zone. Because when you do, you find some pretty incredible places, some incredible experiences. And, and that's what it's all about right. in the long run. Yep, yep. And you make um, some great, you meet great people, too, mm-hmm. when you do it, it seems like. And then by trying those new things, you become a better hunter. Yeah. And that can translate back to everything else you're doing back home, too. Um, you're going to learn things about yourself, about these animals, um, and that all helps in the long run, yeah. too. So get out there. Do this stuff, Yeah, right? absolutely. Awesome. Well, I think we've kept you long enough, Josh. This is right. fun. Yeah. Um, Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah. Appreciate it. Any any final any final words of wisdom you want to leave our listeners with? Mm, I'd just say if you want to come out and hunt western whitetails, do it. Don't think... Uh, don't don't think that they're the same creature mm-hmm. that they are back east because they're slightly different. And keep an open mind, and you just might be really surprised at what you're going to find out there. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. That's about all i got to say. Well, I can't wait to get back out here. Yeah, all right. Thank you, Josh. You bet, Mark. And that is it. Like I just mentioned a little earlier at the beginning, well, at the beginning of the show, We are off next week, like I mentioned, so I'd highly recommend you checking out episodes number 63 with Mark Drury and episode 83 with Shane Mahoney to get you through that uh, that week gap. Although although there might be a little bonus episode coming, I'll give a little teaser here. If you're if you're still listening, there is something worth checking back for next week. But other than that, check out these other two. And before we go, I want to give a big thank you to our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery. Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, of course, thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. And if your hunting season is opening up soon, good luck out there. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. 
Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.